Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special broadcast podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chats featuring key industry and city building leaders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, we feature Gary Berman, uh, CEO of Tricon in 2020, with board member Camille, Camille Douglas. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome again. My name is Les Klein. I'm a co-founder and principal of Quadrangle Architects and also the chair of ULI Toronto District Council. It is my distinct pleasure to kick off the 2020 annual fireside chat in what is a very special year for ULI Toronto and for the city and for our region. Since this May, which is less than three months from now, we will for the very first time play host to a major Urban Land Institute conference, the 2020 Spring Meeting. The Spring Meeting will introduce over 4,000 real estate leaders from across North America, Europe, and Asia as a to Toronto as a global city. As such, the meeting will very much uh, show Toronto in the best possible light. The Spring Meeting is also going to establish the perfect context for this evening's fireside chat and our featured speaker who has played a leading role in making the spring meeting a smashing success as you will soon learn. Events like tonight's are not possible without the support of our sponsors. Thank you to our lead event sponsor, the Carpenter and Allied Workers Union for their continued support of ULI Toronto programs and I'd like to ask you to give them a round of applause. In addition, I'd also like to acknowledge our annual platinum and gold sponsors who make it possible for ULI Toronto to create quality programming and community initiatives year-round. Before I invite Mike York, president of the Carpenters Union Local 27, to the stage to introduce tonight's interviewer, I also have the pleasure to advise you all of an exciting announcement we made last week about the future leadership of ULI Toronto. My term as chair ends at the end of June, and effective July 1st, Emma West, a principal at Bousfields, will take over as the new chair of ULI Toronto. <laughs> Emma's leadership resume with ULI locally and globally is extensive, as is her industry, industry involvement here in the Toronto region. Those of you who know her know her as a values-driven professional and the perfect person to lead the next stage in the realization of ULI's mission to advance the responsible use of land. We also announced our new incoming vice chair and chair of, of mission advancement, Sydney Rotenberg-Walker, a principal at Urban Strategies. Cindy also brings formidable experience as a leader of some of the most high-profile initiatives of ULI Toronto over the past several years and extensive involvement in ULI internationally 
She is also a recognized real estate industry leader, working both domestically and internationally. I am so proud to hand over the reins of our dynamic district council to these two capable leaders who will harness the momentum of our upcoming spring meeting to take ULI Toronto to new heights. Please join me again in congratulating Emma and Cindy. I would now like to invite Mike York, a member of ULI's advisory board uh, and the president of the Carpenters and Allied Workers Union Local 27, once again this year's fi Fireside Chat sponsor, to introduce our interviewer for the evening. Mike. All right. Wow. What a full room. Well done, ULI. Uh, Les, thank you very much, and congratulations to Emma and Cindy. Look forward to your leadership. Now, as a ULI Advisory Board member and a sponsor of both tonight's Fireside Chat Program and the upcoming Spring Meeting Conference, I'd like to say we have a short uh, video uh, on the uh, Spring 2020 event. Great video. And I know that Richard and his team and those of us in this room, we're all looking forward to hosting the ULI World. So that's going to be great. Now, I'm very pleased to introduce Camille Douglas, who's joining us from New York City as this year's interviewer of our guest, Gary Berman. I just met Camille like 30 seconds ago. <laughs> Gary. I've known for a little bit longer, so I'm going to take uh, a minute to just say a couple of words. I've had the pleasure of knowing Gary and seeing his career develop 
over a number of years. We first met when he and Anna Simone were leading the annual Pug Awards that John Bentley Mays of the Globe and Mail once called Tough Love for Toronto's architecture. And tough love they were, challenging both the development and the design communities to deliver better products to the city, the industry, and the buyers of construction. But uh, Gary didn't just challenge. He was at the heart of some amazing projects that have inspired the city and inspired other builders. And in fact, a couple of recent projects, the Selby and Five St. Joseph, made the urban Toronto list of the top 15 projects of the 2010s. You can Google that for more information. Now this commitment to the built infrastructure is duplicated by a commitment to the social infrastructure of our city. And that's seen through initiatives such as working with Toronto's First Nations community and creating paths for the city's youth to join the construction industry as next-gen workers. And I know that all of us in this room are looking forward to Gary's comments and vision about our industry and our city. Uh, now I'll return to the more formal remarks, uh, introducing Camille. Now Camille Douglas is a senior executive in the real estate industry with over 30 years experience in real estate development and finance, executing real estate transactions and financial strategy. Her work has included corporate and project-based acquisitions, dispositions, and financing, including pioneering work on commercial mortgage-backed securities and cross-border equity investment. She's currently a Senior Managing Director, Acquisitions and Capital Markets at Lefrac, a real estate investment and development company. She also serves on the Board of Trustees of Starwood Property Trust, where she is a member of the Audit Committee and is also a member of the Real Estate Advisory Committee of New York State Common Retirement Fund. In addition, she has been an adjunct professor in finance and economics at Columbia Business School since 2004. She received her Master's of Urban Design degree from Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Now, before I turn things over to you, Camille, with that extensive resume uh, to introduce Gary, <laughs> allow me to extend my appreciation to Gary for his leadership in bringing the spring meeting to Toronto. This is going to be a milestone international event for our city and our urban region, much as Les has said. It's going to be a great celebration of what is truly Toronto's moment. And with that, Camille, the floor is yours. There we are. Okay, thank you. So, and thank you all for coming today to this fireside chat with Gary Berman, who you probably doesn't, didn't need an introduction to all of you. Um, he is a director, president, and CEO of Tricon Capital Group, of which I'm on the board. I think that was mentioned, yeah. Okay, so I'm only going to say nice things about him. Um, so it's always a bit of a um, stroll down memory lane for me when I come to Toronto because, um, because this is in many ways the same city that I used to come to when I was in charge of financing for Olympia New York back in the Stone Ages from 1982 to 1994. Uh, we used to come up here on a pretty regular kind of monthly basis to first Canadian place. <laughs> so pretty amazing to be sitting here with all of you today. Um, so um, during this period when I used to come up here before, the 
four bank headquarters at King and Bay, where we are now, including First Canadian Place, for us symbolized the strength of the Canadian banks, which in, from a US perspective where our, our banking system hadn't yet consolidated, propelled Canadian companies to grow not only within Canada but also to expand into the US um, and ultimately around the world. So um, that's a little bit the story of Tricon as well. Uh, so during my time at ONY, I became acutely aware of the similarities and differences between US and Canadian real estate companies and practices, and most importantly, capital markets. And so I was intrigued when I was asked to join the board of Tricon in 2018. And I did so not only because it offered the opportunity to reacquaint myself with the Canadian business community, but also because I understood the company's cross-border challenges. And I, as I got to know them, and I got to know the other directors and some of the senior management, I developed a high degree of confidence in their business strategy and the focus and discipline of their senior management team on the residential business led by Gary, very much so led by Gary. Um, so I'm not sure Tricon needs much of an introduction to most of you, but I'm just going to give you a few data points. It was founded in 1988, uh, went public in 20. 10 on the TSX, maybe someday it'll be public in the US, we'll see. Um, focuses on rental housing, first and foremost, with $10.5 billion of assets under management, um, which is a combination of its own capital as well as third-party capital, which we'll speak a little bit about later. The company's current market cap is over $2 billion, and we own 30,000 rental units in the US and Canada, and I think that includes units under development in Toronto. Um, Two-thirds th two of the units that we own are single-family and one-third multifamily. And 95% of the company's balance sheet today is in the US, although it is still a Canadian company. So, okay. That's good. That's pretty good. Okay. That's <laughs> How long did that take? <laughs> Um, so, anyway, so it's with great pleasure that I'm here with Gary today. Um, Gary has a very impressive track record. He's been instrumental in every aspect of the company's growth over the last 18 years since he joined the company. Um, he's a relatively young CEO, so although there are many accomplishments that we're going to talk about today, or he's going to talk about, I, Gary is first and foremost always focused on the future. Um, being as young as he is and seeing and having a vision for where he wants to take the company. So Tricon was founded by Gary's father. That was funny. He <laughs> um, thought you were being kind. <laughs> uh, who is still chairman of the board and chair of the investment committee. But Gary joined the company in 2002 with an impressive resume that includes Harvard Business School, Goldman Sachs, and Blackstone. Um, but chose in 2015 to join Tricon. And um, so I want to know, Gary, why did you want to work at Tricon? And what has it been like to work with your father day in and day out? 
success in is always challenging in family-owned businesses. Why do you think the succession at Tricon has been successful as it has been, which it has been? Is this being recorded? <laughs> yeah, so I gotta be careful what I say. Well, I joined Tricon in 2002, and um, I'd been working in the U.S. for a few years, as you mentioned, and I, I was working with great companies and great people, but I thought there was a tremendous opportunity to come back to Canada and help my father grow the business. And, and, and in that decision, the key thing for me was I thought David would be an incredible mentor. I, I love I, it when he calls his father David. You know, and, and um, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I grew up with David. I had the, you know, the consummate kitchen table MBA, right? I remember, you know, David in the early years, remember car phones before anyone had a cell phone. David had one of those car phones. And so whenever we were driving around, I would listen to his conversations. And so I learned uh, a lot in the early years by just being around David. And I just thought, what a wonderful opportunity if I could come back and, and work with him and, and, and learn from him. Now, it didn't go that smoothly, I will say, because the truth is David didn't want me to work for him. <laughs> so um, I had to meet his partners. I had to meet some of the, develop you know, some of the developers David was funding. And, and, and ultimately, I think David came around when everyone else thought, you know, this might make this makes sense. I, I, I ultimately got, came around to coming back to Canada. But even before then, David said, you know what, you don't really have any real experience. I want you to go and get, I want you to go and work for a developer. And so I worked for uh, a national property developer here. You know, everyone in Toronto has heard of them, probably Candarell. But I worked for Candarell for a couple of years um, on the other side of the table because Tricom was financing Candarell and other developers. And so, so that's re really where I cut my teeth for a couple of years and learned, learned what development's like. And th only then was I allowed to come back and, and work for Tricon. So it took, it took a while. It wasn't, and, and you know, in the end, it's been the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um, I got, you know, I got far more than I bargained for. Um, I never knew, I never thought, you know, I never thought we'd go public. I didn't, I didn't know how big we would ultimately grow to. I just was really concentrating on what, you know, David and I could do together in the short term. And he was, you know, he's just... And, and the culture has just stayed so true to David's you know, founding principles and hard work, the work ethic, the focus on, on excellence and continuous improvement and integrity. That was something that you know, was so important for me, to be, an environment, you know, to be in an honest environment where we treat people fairly. We're tough, but we treat people fairly. And David, you know, that, that came through, and that was ingrained in everyone that, that worked at Tricon in the early years. And then the other thing I would say is that you know, I didn't know Jeff Matus, David's partner. I didn't know Saul Schulman, um, all three, you know, founding fathers of Tricon, but they're all terrific people. And I think the lesson learned is that, you know, the key is you want to surround yourself with good people. And, and you know, David is, is, you know, a mensch. He's a kind of the consummate gentleman. He's got this old world quality to him. But, and I knew that, but then I also was lucky enough to learn and be mentored by Jeff and Saul. Uh, and they're, they're, both, they're both terrific guys. And so it was, I mean, I, I can't tell you how blessed I've been, how privileged I've been to, to work with Tricon and, and help the company grow over time. And it hasn't, I mean, it's, we've had our challenges. We, I, I remember right when I joined the company, after all of that, we lost our, our key lead investors, right? So Ontario Teachers Plan at that point, um, which was our lead investor, bought Cadillac Fairview. And they decided at that point that they wouldn't invest in funds anymore. 
and then Royal Bank Equity Partners um, basically went out of business. And it, it, was, it was tough because we were, I mean, we were on the wall of fame for Ontario T-shirts. We were probably Royal Bank's top, you know, top portfolio investment. And literally right when I joined, they said, you know, no more. And it, it was, it was uh, and, and you know, that was a near-death experience. And then, you know, we had another one, um, you know, coming out of the financial crisis. I remember, you know, working here in Toronto at, you know, 1067 uh, Young Street. And in the office, it felt like, you know, it was like a, you know, a, a sequel to the perfect storm. I mean, where the, the, the building was literally shaking. It was reverberating. And outside, you'd walk outside, it was Pleasantville, right? But it was, it was, it was a tough environment. And I would say for a period of six months to 12, six to 12 months, we didn't know if we could raise another dollar. So we had two, you know, near-death experiences. And, and through all of that, you know, I can say that David was so calm. I mean, he's the guy, the steady hand on the wheel, driving through a rainstorm, doesn't flinch. And that was, that was another kind of great opportunity to, to go through those very tough environments and know at the end of the day that if you really believe in yourself, you can get through it. And so we had some tough times, but we got through it. Um, I could tell you, I, in what I've been with Tricon now for 18 years, I don't think David and I have had one fight in 18 years. And Jeff and David, I think in 31 years, have only had one fight. It just goes to show that if you are philosophically in line with someone, if you have the same you know, view uh, of the world, it's th th that's, what, that what, that's what makes a great partnership. It's so interesting because succession in real estate companies is a very difficult process usually and yours has been so successful yeah and it, and it hasn't been difficult and I, and I think part of it is because we're all like I mean David Jeff and I we're all very different but we have a common view of the world we approach it differently we approach problems differently but we're able to come together and we always do at the end of the day what's best for the project the investment of the company the, the egos have to have to be suspended and I think to your question on on succession that, that's really the key. There's two key components. One is preparation. I mean, I've been prepared and mentored forever. So it, it, made that, it made that transition a lot easier. But that was the foresight that I think that David really had. Um, and then it, it, it's just, you know, the ego, not, not hanging on for too long. Yeah, and I think the company reinvents itself in line with the way the market is moving. And in, in, in the Great Recession, the market kind of did a 90 degree. And you kind of reinvented Tricon in the single-family home acquisition business, or single, and now rental um, in the U.S. So Tricon currently owns 20,000 single-family rental homes in the U.S., primarily in the Sun Belt, and we have a core FFO of $85 million a year. Um, we have a joint venture with two leading institutional investors to acquire another 10,000. Uh, units. So tell us how Tricon started in this vertical and the role the company has played in transforming this formerly mom and pop industry into a formally managed asset class that it has become right. today. Well, we obviously got through the financial crisis. It was tough for a while, but ultimately we were successful and we raised a lot of money. We ended up raising about a billion dollars of equity uh, from 2009 to 2012, and we invested that in the Sun Belt. Assets out of bankruptcy, we bought discounted notes. 
Um, this was all for sale housing assets, so land development, finished lots. But we knew in, in buying all of that that we were really just land banking for the future because the U.S. at that point in time really didn't need any new housing. It was so overbuilt. Um, so then this idea of, of, you know, could you or should you buy existing homes? You know, if you could buy them below uh, replacement costs, did that make sense? I remember John Ellenswig, who's a senior managing director at Tricon, he, he came and, and first told me about this idea in 2010. And I literally said to him, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> like, have you ever rented one home, 10 homes, 100 homes? How are we, how are we gonna do this? This doesn't work, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we, we watched um, and observed. And finally, we got into it in 2012. And we, we actually got in before Blackstone and, and Colony, but we got into it the same way that we did development, which was to say we didn't really know how to do this ourselves. Let's partner with best-in-class local operators and let them run the business. And that's what happened. We ended up partnering with seven different operators in 13 markets, and it was an interesting time because it was this motley crew of people, you know, former land developers or home builders, Wall Street fixed income, you know, people that worked in the Wall Street fi fixed in income or credit desks, technology hobbyists. They'd all kind of come together, this ragtag group of people that were out of, out of work or looking to make money and created these kind of single family operators. And, um, and shockingly, nothing really went wrong. That was, that was, that was the amazing <laughs> thing. Uh, in the, if, I, if I look back to the early days of acquiring you know, homes on the courthouse steps, I mean, we would literally send representatives with you know, backpacks full of cash and a gun. I mean, it sounds crazy in Toronto to even talk like that. But that's literally what we did. And, and, and you know, our representatives would buy one home at a time um, and they would bid in $100 increments. It could take 30 minutes to buy one home on the courthouse steps. It was wild. I mean, there were, it, it, was, it was interesting because there was all these kind of idiosyncrasies in the market where if, if, if you and your competitors, if your competitors ran out of cash, which happened all the time, you could literally pick up a home for 60000 that just traded for 150000 two minutes before. So that was the, that was the time of, of, you know, the pioneering of single-family rental, but we were taking a lot of risks because a lot of the cases, the homes were sight unseen. You weren't actually able to get in the home, so you didn't know if the renovation was going to be 20000 or 40000 But we got by, and it evolved. And then um, we realized after a couple of years when nothing really went wrong that we said, why don't we just, you know, why don't we try to do this ourselves? Why don't we try to internalize it and take it over? And we ended up buying out our seven different operating partners in about 2014. And then in 2015, we did something really smart. We hired uh, someone by the name of Kevin Baldridge. Um, Kevin now runs that business for us. But Kevin um, was a multifamily professional. Um, he ran urban apartment communities, one of the largest uh, apartment op landlords or operators in the US. Um, and we brought him over to help institutionalize uh, and run the business for us. And, and even that was interesting because Kevin had come from running you know, the shiniest class A multifamily portfolio you've ever seen. This is all coastal properties in California. And then he was gonna go and manage you know, workforce housing where the average home price at that time was about 120 to $150,000. In a Canadian context, people can't even understand that. That's like a closet. <laughs> so, but that's, that's where we were. And it took, actually, Kevin, we said, Kevin, are you sure you want to do, you want to do this? And it, it took him a few days to get back to us. And after he said, you know, yeah, I want to I try this. Let's do it. 
So w when you first bought the single family houses, did you know you were going to hold them for the long term or did you think you might end up flipping them? Did, we, did, we, was we, that a strategy that sort of morphed or was yeah, it? Yeah, I mean the truth is we had no idea. I mean I never told that to Ira, who's in the audience, <laughs> Ira Gloskin, but we really, we, really, we really didn't know. In fact, we thought, we thought it was, we probably thought it was going to be a trade because we just yeah. we didn't know if we, if we could manage them. We yeah. really didn't. I think that's true of most of the people who got into the business. They figured, well, it's cheap. We can always sell later. And, yeah. Then, yeah. and we thought, you know, look, you're buying these so far below replacement cost. I think that the, the difference between what we did and others is we really did focus on yield because we were paying, as a public company, we were paying a current dividend yield, whereas Blackstone, for example, wasn't. They were investing through a fund that didn't have a current cost of capital. We did. So we wanted to make sure that we did acquire homes that could produce enough income to pay our dividend. So recently, um, Tricon made a big acquisition of multifamily homes in the US as well. So can you describe uh, why that seemed to be a smart strategy and um, if you see synergies between the two businesses? Sure, well we bought a, a $1.3 billion portfolio from Starlight. It was their, their number five core fund. Um, and this is a, a portfolio of 23 properties, 7,300 units that are located in the exact same markets, never mind markets, the exact same sub-markets as our single-family rental portfolio. And so we thought in terms of the geographic overlap, it was a really good fit. Um, but at the end of the day, um, both our single-family rental strategy and this multifamily strategy really appeal to what we call the middle market. It's middle market, it's workforce housing. We define the, the middle market in the U.S. as households that are in six, you know, between 60 and let's say $100,000. They can pay $1,000 to $1,800 a month in rent. And this multifamily portfolio and our portfolio, we're right in the middle of that. Yeah, so rents of 12, just to put it, you know, context for the Toronto audience, rents of let's say 12 to $1,400 a month. So very, you know, really appealing to a very similar demographic. Um, and, and our long-term goal, and I don't mean this literally, is really to control the life cycle of the resident or the household. So when someone graduates, let's say from college or university, they're gonna rent an apartment. They could rent an apartment from us and then maybe they get older, they have kids or form a family, then maybe they, they need more space and they're gonna rent a single family home. And then, you know, life happens, maybe they get divorced, there's a life event, maybe they need to go back into a, an apartment, they get older, they wanna move into a single family rental community. The idea is we, we wanna be able to control that uh, and we think there's a lot of marketing and operational synergies. And the other thing is, is that when we talk to major institutions, sovereign wealth funds, private investors, you've probably heard the term beds and sheds, but that's really what they're looking for today. They're looking for residential and industrial. And in residential, they want single family and multifamily. And so if we can offer them both, then that's one-stop shopping. It's almost, it's, it's almost like a flywheel. So if you were Amazon and you were selling books, would you just stop at selling books or would you look at complementary products? And we don't want to go too far, but we really view those as complementary products. So Tricon has joint ventures with institutional partners to acquire more single family housing. So um, it's kind of, it was an interesting confluence because the, the housing became available because of the downturn and then the idea to hold it for long-term rental kind of coincided with a demographic trend, both of baby boomers needing to liquefy their equity investments and also millennials kind of not really yet able to afford home ownership. Uh, so that played into it. And a third factor played into it, I think, was the development of some software technology that, that 
permits the management of single-family housing in a way that, and the acquisition. Um, can you talk about that? How I mean, because it's it, in some ways, Tricon is a technology company um, posing as a rental uh, housing company. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to say we're a technology company because then our valuation would be 10x. <laughs> so that'd be great to say. Before I want to talk about technology, but I, I think before before I do, because I mean, we couldn't run our single-family rental business. It is a technology business, absolutely. Um, in fact, RBC put out an initiating coverage on us the other day, and they called us a tech-enabled real estate company, and I think that that's the best way to describe it. That's a good definition. Um, and, and and we should talk about that. But I think before we get there, I, I, I just want to talk about our, our kind of transformation. You know, because when we went public in 2010, we were only focused on for sale housing. And now we've made this kind of complete transformation or evolution to be really a rental housing company. So that's a big shift. A lot of people in Toronto think of us as this company that funded condos. Um, it was just, you know, Mike's nodding his head, just for sale housing. But actually today we're a rental housing company. And the reason that we've made this kind of really dramatic shift over time is because that's, that's what the market needs. The market needs affordable housing. I mean, no matter where you are, I mean, everyone here knows in Toronto how acute the, the affordability issue is. But it, it, the same issue exists, I think, all over the Western world and also in the Sun Belt. Um, and for so many households, and including millennials, um, you know, housing and, and ownership is just out of reach now. So, so we're, we're really trying to fill the gap. We're trying to provide the market um, with, with what they want. Um, and in the U.S. in particular, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of millennials saw their parents go through the foreclosure crisis. We didn't go this through, go through this in Canada, but they realized, you know, that home prices don't always go up, uh, and they saw the pain that I think, you know, some of their parents went through when they lost their homes and, their, and in many cases, their lives. Also, there's student debt. I mean, student debt in the U.S. has has increased by about a trillion dollars in a decade. The delinquency on student debt in the U.S. is 10 percent. I mean, that's a travesty. Um, so a lot of people just can't get into the mortgage market, the housing market if they wanted to. Um, so there's real big changes. Obviously credit has tightened a lot. Only the best borrowers today get mortgages. So a lot of people are literally just shut out of the market. Uh, and I don't the mobility I, as well. People and, need to be able to get up and go yeah, to the next job. And I don't know if you saw the, the Economist expose on housing, but there was, there was one quote in there that really stood out for me. And essentially, they said that in the U.S. in 1990, the baby boomer cohort, which at that time were in their early 30s, they owned a third of U.S. real estate by value. Today, a similar-sized millennial cohort, at similar age, owns 4% of U.S. real estate by value. So, so, that, so that's startling. And, uh, and so a lot of this is being driven by, by economics and people feeling that they're priced out. But then also, as a result of that, the ideals start to shift. And I, and I, and I think that we're trying to, we're trying to um, you know, we're trying to work with that. And uh, when, I, when I talk about the ideals, well, it, it, was, it was interesting. I, I was watching a, um, I don't know if any of you have seen the, the Ralph Lauren documentary on, on HBO or Crave. I'd, I'd recommend it. I've, I've always been a fan of Ralph Lauren and the, and the business he built. Um, but it's, it's really an expose of what the American dream meant to, to Ralph Lauren, and he, he built his whole business around it. And he shows you his homes in Manhattan, Bedford, and Colorado, and Jamaica, and the whole lifestyle is built around ownership. 
And it's beautifully done, but when you look at it, you're like, wow, this, 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 this is false. It almost is like the American dream is dead, right? When you watch that movie, it just doesn't seem to Let's make- say more it, elusive. It, it doesn't make it seem today, but <laughs> as, I, as I thought about it, it's not dead, it's not dead. That version is dead, yeah. but just like capitalism, it reinvents itself. So the version of what the American dream today is, is you can still have all of that, but you're gonna rent it, yeah. right? And so. Yeah. We've gone from on Airbnb, right? We've gone from <laughs> accumulating uh, assets, maybe to the extreme, to accumulating experiences, yeah, uh, maybe to the extreme. But I think what matters today, certainly to millennials, is convenience, flexibility, connectivity. We've been talking about in the community, and we're ideally positioned with our rental housing platform to to take advantage of those trends. Yeah. So we're really seeing, I think, a, a big shift in what's important to people. Um, all of this is premised on technology. Right, so I, 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 let, let me talk a little bit about technology. You cannot- Because the original skeptics about rental housing said there's no way you can manage it. I mean, you sort of alluded to that. They're gonna leave with the refrigerator in the U-Haul. It's impossible. Who's yeah. gonna mow the lawn? Yeah. It was very, you know, in, in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism about the ability to have a sustainable rental, single family rental business. And, and rightfully so, because if you, if you looked at it through a traditional real estate lens, I mean, you would have thought this makes no sense. How could you possibly manage it? Um, and what we didn't, to be fair, what we didn't even know up front, and, and certainly what the skeptics didn't understand, is it is essentially a technology business. And, and when you think about what that means, I'll I'm gonna get into the specifics, but think about it really high level. What are, the, what are the different things that are driving that? It's really a confluence of cellular, so that's mobility, access anywhere, broadband, so speed of connectivity, and then cloud computing. Those are really the innovations that have allowed Amazon, Airbnb, Uber to really be the huge companies that they are today. We're, we're using the exact same technologies, right? And, and that's what's, and it, what those technologies allow us to do is to organize incredibly complex tasks. So if you said to yourself, how can you order something on your desktop? And if you don't like it, you can send it back the, you know, the next day. And there's millions of people doing this at the same time. How does that work? How, how, that's exactly what's happening in single family rental. We're able to organize you know, millions of transactions. And so we've got to a point now where essentially every aspect of the business is automated. Um, I, wanna, I could talk about that. So you use yep. technology to buy the homes, to lease the homes, to service, manage, repair, whatever the homes. You use technology across Everything. the board in every aspect of Everything. the business. Everything. So, give the audience some, some examples. So on acquisitions, we have a pr proprietary software called Triad, and essentially it uses algorithms um, to, to, to buy a home. So what we do is we screen the MLS, the multiple listing service, every five or 10 minutes. In the US as an example, almost six million homes trade a year, and the Sun Belt's about 40% of that. So we're literally screening hundreds of thousands of homes in a quarter. We have a 90 point criteria that essentially acts as a funnel. So as soon as a home hits the MLS, it's gonna start dropping through the funnel based on the algorithms. What's the configuration of the home? What's the census tract, block group? Um, we're ultimately solving obviously for yield, but we're gonna look at school scores and crime scores and, and proximity to transportation. And essentially we're trying to determine whether that home fits our criteria. We can underwrite the home and put in an offer in five minutes. So if any of you have gone through the process of trying to buy a home, you know how daunting it is to buy one home. We're buying 800 homes one at a time per quarter, and that's only because we're capital constrained. 
if we had more money, we could, we could easily buy double of that. So we yeah. basically automated that process. The only time a person, a physical human being, uh, goes into the home is when we have it under contract. So at that point, we'll send a, a maintenance tech or super to take a look at the home. And then um, we've essentially automated the renovation and also the term process. So this is, this is a key part of our operations. We call that Triforce. And essentially what we're doing is we're standardizing the scope and we're automating the workflows. And in a way, you're branding the Tricon Rental Home. And we're branding it. So we have, we have, we have uh, contracts with national suppliers, which includes warranty. So all the components that go in the home into the renovation are the same. We use 3D mapping technology, so we can basically tell within a second the configuration of the home, the linear feet. So a tech can literally go into that home, just start punching buttons. I need you know, new cabinets, I need this amount of paint, uh, flooring, need a new air conditioner and automatically that scope, that budget is prepared. Yeah. And the central office knows about it immediately. So I wanna move on, because we're really fast running out of time, um, to the, the um, build to rent strategy that Tricon yep. also, so interestingly, so the company is not only acquiring these single family homes, but also um, building them in a joint venture with the Arizona State Teachers uh, Retirement System. Could you just briefly comment on, on what's special about that uh, particular vertical? Yeah, sure, so this is another new idea. Um, we've been buying organic single family homes. So one here, one there in a neighborhood, primarily in a, in a community where it, it's a for, it's a ownership community. It's actually one of the things we look at in our buy box. What percentage of people own in this community or in the zip code? The idea now is to create single family rental communities. So imagine a subdivision in Toronto, instead of selling that to the consumer, we build that subdivision and we rent it. Um, and the idea behind it is you, you get the best of both worlds. You get the privacy um, of single family housing, but then you get the community aspect of, living, of, of being in a kind of more of a multifamily style community where there could be amenities. We can use apps to playing block parties or barbecues. So it's, we think it's this kind of interesting hybrid asset class. Um, if, I, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, we don't have a lot of this here in, in Canada, but garden-style complexes were, were built everywhere in the U.S. Sun Belt in the 50s and 60s, you know, surrounding a pool. And that's where the boomers lived. And now the millennials, which again, are shut out of the home ownership market, but are now at the point where they have kids, we think a lot of them might like to live in these single-family rental communities. So Arizona State's really excited about this. We have a, a big venture with them. We're just starting, um, but it, it could become a very big business. So speaking of Arizona State, um, there, Tricon is engaged in a lot of third-party capital uh, management of you know, capital management. So, um, can you explain, like, what is your pitch? Like, why, why are you, why is Tricon so popular with these um, global institutional investors? Well, I mean, I think. Well, well, let's first talk about the product, and this is pretty easy, actually. We tell them we're focused on essential shelter, which is what we're doing. And the thing with essential shelter is that if you're in an in inflationary time, good economic times, and there's wage inflation, you're able to obviously increase rents and you get good torque in the business in good times like we are today. But in tougher times, it's just, you know, people need a place to live. Where are they going to go? I mean, our, our, our residents um, are, you know, that, are, that are renting our single family homes, again, they're paying $1,400 a month. They're not gonna double up. They're gonna find a way to make that work. So we think it's a very defensive uh, asset class 
will perform well in good times and bad times. And that's exactly what the big sovereign wealth funds and pension plans are looking for. They're looking for long-term assets that they can match against the long-term liabilities. So we have the perfect product for them. Um, so that, that part, I think, is fortunately today fairly easy. The question then is why Tricon? And, and I think, look, we, we've, we've been in business for 31 years. We've, we've got a lot of experience. We've got the track record. Um, we're very, they like our focus. So some of them are obviously used to, um, you know, backing the really big PE shops, but we're singularly focused on residential, and they like that. We're a sharpshooter. Yeah, I think it's a big change in the market today. That if you if, if you're an owner operator, um, you you can add value. That, that the whole real estate market is no longer just financially driven. It's not a it's not a buy sell financial flip, right? You know, flip the asset kind of market anymore. And so the company really adds value and. Yeah, and, and the investors respond and, to that. And I think the other thing is, I mean, we're now a fully integrated, you know, operator, property manager, developer. They, they've moved away as, as returns have compressed and it's harder and harder to make a return. You've got to offer more. I mean, David always used to say to me, you know, what good are you to man or beast? And, um, and that's exactly the point. You know, how are we going to be relevant to these institutional investors? Being an allocator, you're not relevant anymore. Yeah. So the That's fact right. that we can offer all of that under one roof and do it, I think, with great reporting and with integrity, um, I, I think we offer a lot. Evelyn will tell me if I missed anything after. <laughs> so Gary likes to say that the company is purpose-driven. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so purpose-driven purpose is purpose is answers the why, not the what. The, the what is we're a rental housing company or maybe we want to be the, the most innovative rental housing company, but why? And, and the why is because we want to enrich you know, our team, our employees, the lives of our team and our employees and our residents and the communities we all live in. That, that's why we want to do it. It's not a tangible goal. It's aspirational. It's something we may never fully achieve. It's something that might take 20 or 50 or 100 years. But that's what brings everybody at Tricon together. And, and the reason that's so important is that we find that when people feel that they work for a purpose-driven company, there's more meaning to what they do. They have more conviction in their job. They're going to be more productive. Um, and so what we're really trying to do is we take care of our people, our team first, um, well-being, wellness, help them with career progression, education. Um, so that then they feel fulfilled and they can take care of a residence. I mean, you would never want to have disgruntled employees take care of residents. Think about how that's going to go. And so uh, it sounds like common sense, but, yeah. but that, that's essentially what we're trying to do. So there's a method to our madness. But when our maintenance techs feel pride in what they're doing, um, then they're really going to take care of our residents. And then our residents' retention is going to go up, and they're going to be more likely to referral. So that's, that's what purpose-driven mean, means to us. And it's, 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 a, it's a lifelong, it's an, evo, it's an evolution. Even in your headquarters building, you have, um, you promote the, well, uh, the well-being of your employees with um, stand-up desks and excellent lighting and, and shades that go down when the sun is at a certain angle and no carpets on the floors and all these really thoughtful elements. People eat in a common area as opposed to at their desks. All these um, really thoughtful efforts create a culture to the whole company, I guess, at Tricon. Yeah, and I think, I think all of those things have been transformative for, for our team. And I, I think the biggest one is this idea that you're not allowed to eat at your desk. 
right? So I think when we first That's implemented that idea, people thought that was crazy. Um, but the idea is, is if you're too busy, you can't take a 15 minute break, you're too busy. And, and also, you're missing a great opportunity to socialize and to meet others at the company and to exchange ideas. And just to take a break, actually. So, so we've, done that. we've done that with huge success. The other one, we, we, the, you know, key, we only have two rules. That's one of them. The other one where we kind of fight every day um, is this idea that in a meeting of less than 60 or 90 minutes, you can't, you can't bring in your phone. Right? So right. we fight that. Um, because we want people to be in the moment. We want them to be mindful. Right? And so these are kind of some of the things we're really trying to affect the culture. I, I really believe you get the culture you deserve. Um, and you've got to fight that every day. Um, and if you don't take care of your culture, you know, you'll have problems down the road. Yeah. So we're, we're always trying to improve our culture. So coming home here to Toronto, um, the uh, Tricon currently has 3,600 uh, rental units in various stages of development, pre-development and development. Uh, in Toronto, ranging from affordable to higher-end uh, rental units across the city, s seven projects. And uh, the Selby is currently complete and operating. That's the first project. Um, so uh, as the founder of the Pug Awards, which maybe I'm not sure everybody knows what those are, you could explain what they are. Um, how do you think um, Tricon's projects are going to stack up uh. <laughs> well, I, well I, I would tell you, for sure they'd win, right? But that's easy to say because the Pug Awards isn't around anymore. Um, look, the, the Pug Awards, for those that don't know, was the People's Choice Awards for architecture. And so, I mean, that was a great thing. The, in, the really interesting thing about the People's Choice Awards is that you could take experts and say, you know, Mike or whoever, let's, let's take a look at these buildings. Let's, let's, what is your opinion? How would you rate these buildings? It turned out that when you aggregated individual decisions, you would get the same or a better result. That was kind of the brilliance behind the, people, behind the People's Choice Awards. So um, what, the other thing we learned from that is that everyone likes anything that is more human scale. So a lot of the buildings are towers. So that it, it just is what it is. But the reason the Selby would have, I think, done extremely well is because the the, the really the, f the front of the building, the entrance, is, is, the, is the heritage building. It's the Goodera Mansion, right? That's been beautifully restored. That, is, that gives that kind of human scale to it. The building is clad in, in red masonry, right? As opposed to another glass building. So, um, and it's got a really dramatic notch. I, I think all of those things make the building stand on the skyline. Um, and, it's, and the Selby's received all kinds of rewards, awards. And actually made a ton of money. Um, a lot of buildings that receive a lot of awards don't make any money. That's a joke. I remember one year when I presented it to one of the developers, he said, you know what they say about buildings that get awards, right? But the great thing is that if we can, if we can find a way where we can make a lot of money and, and you know, improve the, the quality of architecture in the city, that's what we want to do. The, the Pug Awards were for best and worst. Best right? and worst. That was the other thing that was very un-Canadian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, and, and actually over time, uh, we, we became more politically correct with it and some of the board members were, were upset. Um, but essentially, we published a list from first to last of how the buildings were, were ranked. And that was the part that was, was unconventional. And, you know, like, 
it, it's hard to, you know, we, we were talking today about, you know, what we eat. You know, if I, if I said to you, you know, you should be a vegetarian, like, that doesn't go away, doesn't go across very well if I tell you what you're going to eat. And if I went to a developer and said, your building's ugly, that doesn't go over very well. Right. Right? So <laughs> if you could have the people vote on it and then you list it, I don't need to say that anymore. Right. But that's essentially, <laughs> that's essentially what we are trying to do, Anna and I were trying to do, and take ourselves out of it. Uh, and it worked really well. And in fact, um, even, and this was, we're going back, you know, five to 15 years, but even in that time period, the Pug Awards were front section news for all the major papers for the better part of five to 10 years because the media loved looking at the ugliest buildings, and some of them were pretty ugly. <laughs> so, but I think, I think we did well because I think we, 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 we had, we, we turned the conversation. So the idea was we goaded developers in, into, into improving what they're doing. And, and, and my hope one day, and I think we're getting, I think we're getting there. This is certainly the, the culture that Chicago has. There, there should be a culture in Toronto where we try to outdo each other. That's really what we want. Each developer should try to be doing something better than the next um, in terms of design and architecture. That's, if we want our city to truly be great from an architecture perspective, that's, that's what we need to do. We don't need the city to do it. We now have a design review panel, but, but the development community can do that by themselves the way Chicago has. Um, and so I, I, I hope that we'll continue to try to outdo each other. I've always had a sense that Toronto is pretty self-conscious when it comes to architecture. But, huh? I, think we ha I think we are now, but I don't think yeah. we were 10 or 20 years ago. Um, okay. I, I mean, we, we, we definitely were at one point in time. We, I mean, we were back in, in, in you know, let's say the 50s you know, to 70s. But I, but I would say in the last few decades, we've not been as progressive as we could be. Okay, so um, unlike your business in the U.S., which generates almost immediate cash flow because you're acquiring properties and then just doing some relatively minor fix-up and renting them out, um, cash flow from the development of high-rise rental buildings in uh, Toronto won't be realized for several years. Um, are these businesses synergistic? I mean, one could argue two different countries, two different types of, you know, one's a development activity, one's an acquisition. Um, or, 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 or not? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, of course we think that. I mean, I, I think it's, we, we just view it as a continuum, right? I mean, in, in any given business where it's single family, I mean, for example, single family rental, people view it with one lens today. But why can't there be multiple strategies within single family rental? There could be core, core plus, value add, opportunistic, built to core, which is what we're doing with Arizona State. Multifamily's always had that vernacular, right? So in Toronto, what we're doing is we're doing built to core um, within multifamily because there, there aren't any class A buildings to buy. It, it doesn't exist. The way this city's evolved recently is that new apartment product is really provided by way of condos. Investors are buying the units and then they're renting it out. We think a more efficient model is actually to build rental property and rent it directly to the re to the consumer household. But with it's actually management. very difficult to find sites that are affordable to to do that. So it can is, you describe is. the acquisitions? Yeah, strategy? no, it's very tough. It's a, it's a challenge, um, and especially because in many cases we can't uh, always compete head to head with a condo developer that might be able to pay more up front. Um, typically in the apartment business, you're, you're going to make that money over a longer period of time. A uh, condo, you're able to make the money quicker. Right. Um, so we're really taking a long-term view uh, on apartment. So we have to be, we have to be more creative. Um, we have to partner with, you know, uh, landowners that maybe don't have development expertise. 
um, but rather than sell their site to a condo developer uh, and maximize short-term gains, they're more willing to develop it as an apartment uh, for, you know, for generational long-term cash flow purposes. Um, there's definitely tax advantages to doing that as well. So we need to work with those type of groups or government agencies. Um, we've got a, a really, I think, world-class project that we're doing with Dream and Kilmer um, in, in you know, the wet, what's called the West Dawnlands. On the, on the east side of the city by the distillery district. Um, that is, is an opportunity where we're partnering with three uh, levels of government, federal, provincial, and city, to create um, you know, what I think will be, when it's done, um, a leading example of city building, not just in Toronto, but around the world. So you, you, we just have to be more creative, but, but this, is what, this is what we need. And I think the government um, at different levels realizes that. And so I think we're going to see more and more opportunities to, to develop, you know, rental and affordable rental in partnership with, with the government. So it's, it's two different executions of the same strategy. Per well, the other thing I would say about it is that the, the property management is, is consistent, right? So, um, so, so we've internalized property management north of the border here in Toronto. That's being run um, out of Santa Ana, Orange County, where we have our accounting, IT, legal, our call center, our procurement, everything's being run centrally. Um, and a, a lot of the, tech, the technologies that I talked about, I, hadn't, I didn't get all the way, but all the technologies that we've used to innovate the single family rental business, we believe we're gonna be able to apply to multifamily. Um, I'll give you an example. I talked about the, the, you know, the automation of, of home acquisitions, but we've also automated the acquisition of the customer in single family rental. So the way that works is if you're interested in renting one of our homes in the Sunbelt, um, you would, we would use search engine optimization. Um, you'd be driven from an internet listing site to our website. Let's say you were interested in 123 Elm Street. You could take a virtual tour of that home and then you can go and see it through what we call a self-showing. This, this is the game changer. In the early days, we were sending leasing agents to meet people and that was very inefficient because the leasing agent might get stuck in traffic or someone didn't show up, very expensive way. Um, so we developed, we in the industry developed self-showings. The way that works is you'll call our call center, we'll take a nominal deposit, we'll take your credit card and your driver's license and when you show up to the property, you can go whenever you want, you can go at five in the morning, you can go at midnight, you take a selfie of yourself, that gets matched through facial recognition with your driver's license and the door automatically opens, you're in. So that's, that's how far we've advanced this. And then a few minutes later, we'll send you a text and we'll say, if you like the home, here's how you apply. You can apply online, we qualify you virtually, you sign online through DocuSign and you pay online. You're not going to super and bringing your post-dated checks. That's how this has evolved. Yeah. So I said that last part to compare that to multifamily, but I think once um, you know, buildings are stabilized, our buildings are stabilized, for example, the Selby, we should be experimenting with self-showings. And it turns out that millennials really don't like touring with agents. <laughs> they would much rather do the research online and just do this on their own. And then what we can do is we can repurpose that payroll. So now um, the, 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 you know, the, the people that are on property, maybe they can be involved in resident engagement, planning so activities for the residents. So are you using residents. smart locks to program access? Yeah. And yeah. at the Selby, we have smart locks. So that, that, that's, essential, that's essentially where, where it's going. And then also the, the Triforce, the, the operating um, software, we, enterprise software we use for renovations and turns in single family is definitely something that can automate workflows in multifamily here in Toronto.
So we're going to keep on getting more and more efficient with what we do. There's a lot of synergies, and, and we're just in the early days of achieving them. So I'm going to call this um, leadership in the age of disruption. It's kind of what you're doing, which I mean, which is sort of which is where we are. Um, so um, clearly, you have a great track record uh, behind you, eight, 18 years um, at Tricon. How do you see the future of Tricon? What um, what, what, what do you see, what, where do you see the company going? Well, I think we've defined uh, who, we are, who we are and what we're going to be, right? We're a rental housing company and we'll continue to manage third-party capital, so I think none of that's changed. It's actually, um, I asked this question to some of our executives at our investor day. We, we currently own and manage about 30,000 rental units, and I said, if we come back in 10 years, how many units do you think we'll be at? Uh, and interestingly, they all did their math differently, but they all came to 100,000 plus. So I think in a, in a decade, um, and, and that's not aggressive, I, I think we'll be, if all goes according to Hoyle, you never know, um, I think we'll be at 100,000 units. And it's a scale business, so every home, every apartment that we add makes us more and more efficient. But I think, I think what's incredible about our model is if you think about um, disruption, if you think about venture capital, typically what happens is you have ideas and capital on one hand, and then you have people and technology on the other. And it's not a very efficient process. You, you read about, you know, the Ebays and the, and the Ubers that, 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 you know, ultimately, you know, succeed. But there's thousands of companies that just go by the wayside. We've got capital ideas, people, and technology under one roof. So we have, I think, this tremendous advantage at Tricon to be able to continue to, continue to innovate. Right? Every time we have a problem, we embrace problems. Every time there's a problem, that, I think, is what the age of disruption means. You have to be open-minded. You have to be willing to embrace problems and, and relish at the idea of coming up with new solutions. Right? So that, that's, that, I think, and I don't know where it ends up. Like, I never thought, we'd be, I never thought I'd be sitting here talking to you. Um, <laughs> you never, you don't, you know, I don't, and quite frankly, I don't even set goals of 100,000 units. It's not really interesting. I, I try to challenge our team to have stretch goals for the given year. You know, if we're going to acquire 3,000 units, Maybe we should try to get to four or five thousand, but it's it's not thinking that far out. It's it's more let's it's a process of continuous improvement. Put your head down, work hard, continue to improve, and you see what happens. And maintaining that flexibility, I think, has been critical to the company over its whole history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you know, it, you, you can't be too set in your ways in an age of disruption, right? Yeah. Because you can get left behind really quickly. Right. And, and I would say anyone now, you know, in the audience, if you're not applying technology to your business today, you know, look out, right? Things are changing really fast. I mean, think about it this way. You know, we've had smartphones for, what, 10 years maybe? And um, we've been on this planet for 50 to 60,000 years. So think about how things have changed in the last decade. It's, it's unbelievable. We're living in an, an incredible time right now. This is a really interesting time. This, I, I think it harks back to the 20s, right? When, when we, you know, ushered in a new era of mass production of automobiles and there was mobility and connectivity. Well, now yeah. the smart smartphones put that on steroids, right? So I, we're just starting. It's just going to keep on going. I think we'll be at this for a couple of decades. Yeah, I feel like disruption is being disrupted and then disrupted <laughs> again. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, 
So I think we're going to take questions now. Um, if anybody has any questions for Gary. Michael Fox from Mod Developments. Um, I'm wondering if you're encountering interesting policy issues as you're doing uh, single-family rental in the Sun Belt, and if that has any implications for the whole discussion about the Yellow Belt in Toronto and Missing Middle. Well, what we're doing in the Sun Belt is is really helping to provide uh, the solution for the fact that there's you know relatively there's affordability crisis and there's just not enough you know, affordable housing being provided. Essentially what we're doing is we're, I mean, and actually a lot of these technologies are doing it, is we're, we're taking capacity out of the economy and we're repurposing it. That, that's essentially what Airbnb does. Um, we're doing that with single family homes. So we are providing, and when you think about it, the value proposition is unbelievable, right? We, we take a, what could be an older home, we renovate it to a common standard, it's not a state-of-the-art home. I mean, we, we've built state-of-the-art homes. We know what those look like, but it's a hotel-ready home. I mean, and that does not exist. If you ever try to rent a home, I mean, the walls are scuffed. It's going to probably be a bad experience. This is a hotel-ready home, and then we provide you with professional property management. So that, you know, you, know you, don't have to, you don't have to go to Home Depot on the weekend, for example. We take care of the home for you. It's a maintenance-free lifestyle. So it's an incredibly compelling value proposition um, which I think a lot of people recognize is needed. Uh, now, that being said, the, when we talk about kind of policy and kind of housing advocacy, the, the, the pressure in the U.S. has really come from the, the much more expensive locales, place, like similar to Toronto, places like California or New York, where there is more pressure of rent control. Um, but in the Sun Belt, and, and America, as you know, is a very divided place. Uh, and we're seeing this play out right now um, in the run-up to the 2020 election, but there's very different views as to as how to how, how to you know how to govern things like housing or think about capitalism, and uh, in the Sun Belt, you know, rent control for the most part is an anathema. It, it just nobody would want that. They believe in the market. They believe in capitalism. They believe capitalism will fix things if they're not working. I'm not I'm not judging or commenting whether it's right or wrong. That's that's really the belief. So. We don't really encounter uh, that in the Sun Belt, but there has recently been a push in California to adopt a cap um, on rent increases, which I believe has been adopted. And, and, and I, we think it makes sense. It's a reasonable cap. The, the approach we take as a landlord is to try to be responsible, right? So the interesting thing that we do is we self-govern on renewals. There's, there's no cap in our business in, in the U.S. We could raise rents to whatever we want, but we don't. Um, we, try to, we try to be responsible, we self-govern on renewals, we strike the balance between our residents and our shareholders. We believe that over time we'll get the rent, but we don't want to uh, chase residents out of our home. We're trying to run a model where we have the lowest possible turnover. So that's the way we think about it. But this kind of missing ban is really what we're providing. That's our, our business in many ways is set up to solve that. You're finding tenants are are staying multiple years for the most part. Yeah, I mean, if you look at our um, if you look at our turnover ratio, 
And again, remember the, the mark in Toronto turnover is much lower because, for example, apartments, we've rent control here. Um, but our single family rental business, the turnover has been at or below 30%. In fact, it's about 27% for the year. So that means that residents or household residents are staying in our homes for three to four years on average. So we're, we're, we're pretty happy with that. Uh, Gary, excellent presentation. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you, how are you using leverage as part of your acquisition and ownership model? So we, um, we, we use property uh, level debt or recourse debt. Um, and and our, our leverage at this point is, um, I would say relatively high. Um, our leverage is at 60% on a look through basis. That's not high. Um, from a private equity perspective is, is a lot of private equity companies are very comfortable operating at 60 to 65% leverage, but as a public company, um, the trend has been to lower leverage. And so we've you know, talked about publicly how we have a path to lowering our leverage from 60% to 50 to 55, um, which is where we, where, where we think it should be. Um, but our model is to take on leverage typically at the property level. Um, and I think over time, uh, we may we might that might evolve to taking more unsecured debt on. We'll see how that we'll see how that goes, but that's 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 the way we think about it. Hi, when you're looking at building purpose-built rental in Toronto, what sort of yields are you looking to to achieve first year out or or once it's stabilized, so the going in cap rate. Yeah, so I mean, we're typically underwriting um, untrended uh, development yields of about four and a half percent. That's what we would underwrite, and, and that would compare to, um, you know, where would those buildings trade today? Maybe three and a half, maybe three and three quarters. Um, we're locking in long-term financing in the low twos, you know, two to two and a half. So we we feel there's a good spread between that untrended yield, that means today's, based on today's rates, um, and where buildings are trading and where the financing market is. But we're finding because of rent inflation, the, the, the yields tend to be uh, considerably higher. So the Selby, for example, the development yield was about 6%. Thanks for a great presentation so far. So you, two questions. One is uh, your development program. I mean, you you mentioned, I mean, I don't think you're a REIT, but you've got a dividend, so you've got to be careful on your free cash flow. But can you talk a bit about the development program and then, you know, any sort of technology-driven improvements on the sort of development construction side maybe along those lines? Well, I, I can tell you for sure we're not a REIT. Um, we are a corp. <laughs> Um, we, do, we do pay a dividend at seven cents a quarter. Um, our dividend yield is about 2.4%. Um, our payout ratio, we just started publishing FFO, um, but our payout ratio on an FFO basis has been kind of around 50%. Um, and on an AFFO basis, we haven't released that yet, it'll obviously be higher. But we're definitely generating positive cash flow. Um, so, you know, we're very comfortable, you know, very comfortable, on, and over time, you know, we do believe in paying rent, so to speak, to shareholders. So um, as our cash flow and our FFO continue to grow, we'll, we'll over time think about, you know, increasing, increasing our dividends. Um, on the tech, sorry, your other question was on technology and, and development. Yeah, can you talk about your development pipeline? Yeah, sure. What you're looking at there and, and uh, the growing 
Yeah, so I would say that um, what we've got, so we have a development pipeline of 3,600 units. Um, that includes the salvi, which is 500 units, which is an active lease up, almost complete. Um, we've gonna, we're gonna have about 1,500 units under construction this year in Toronto. So it's, it's a pretty active pipeline. Um, and we're working with institutional partners over time to double that. So this will be the highest quality apartment portfolio, never mind in Toronto, but for sure in, in North America. Um, you just can't replicate what we're doing. Um, all downtown, really high quality sites, transit oriented. So we're, we're incredibly excited about it. Um, we've built out a really impressive, uh, I think, development team. We do all the in-house development, but we do not act as the, as the CM or the contractor. So we're working with a variety of different uh, contractors right now. They're probably better than me to talk about kind of what technologies they're using. Um, but I would say this, I mean, the construction industry in general is not advanced from a technology perspective. Really very little's changed in 100 years. Um, and, and that's a problem that needs to get solved at some point because there's not enough young people if you look at actually a lot of the construction workers, they're, they're older and there's not young people coming in to the business. Millennial, Mike knows, he's trying to help with this, but millennials are, are not, you know, in general, not coming into the construction industry. This is a problem in, in the U.S. and Canada. In fact, in the U.S., one of the reasons uh, there's an affordability problem is, you know, the U.S. is not building enough uh, housing and affordable housing. Um, we, you know, we used to joke that Trump wanted to build a wall to keep the remaining Mexicans in. <laughs> right? So, um, but that, that's where the construction industry's at. You actually need labor to build stuff. We're not using robotics. Um, some stuff's being done kind of on a prefab or panelized, but it's, it's not very advanced. There's, there's a couple of major sovereign wealth funds that are investing in automation, but we're still in the really early days of it, and we're watching it closely. It's, it's something we're intrigued by, because the future of construction ultimately is going to be in automation, but we're not, I don't think we're close. Hi, um, my question is, are you looking at single family rental at all in maybe Southern Ontario as opposed to just the GTA? Um, we'd love to, but I mean, the, the numbers just don't work. Like, I mean, and that just speaks to the, the housing affordability issue here. I think if we wanted to, so, you know, for our, our joint venture partners in the US, we're underwriting um, our single family rental acquisitions to just under a 6% cap rate. Um, and I think if we wanted to implement that strategy in Ontario, we'd be looking at 1% to 2%. In fact, we looked at it in Alberta, which is obviously has gone through some hard times, and I think the cap rate there would be 2 to 3%. That's how tough the economics are here in Toronto and Canada. So it, it's, uh, I mean, we, we, we'd love to, I mean, I, I think, again, our purpose, you know, why are we here, how do we help people, is to provide you know, affordable, affordable housing and, and more rental housing. It's very tough to do here. And we need more help. We actually need more help from the government to make it work. Hi, Gary. Uh, Follow-up question on technology. I'm curious how you developed, like, the software and the algorithms you were talking about earlier. Do you have in-house capabilities or do you outsource that? And depending on the answer to that question, why did you take the approach that you took? Yeah, there's, you, can't, you can't buy it. It doesn't exist. I mean, we are creating um, you know, a, a new asset class, a new industry from scratch, essentially. There's nothing you could buy off the shelf. So we created ourselves with our own in-house team. 
Um, you know, we've got data scientists, uh, programmers or software engineers, not a big team, we've got a very small team, but they're essentially um, taking existing software and customizing it. So this is where I kind of stop short of saying we're a technology company because, you know, we're not Salesforce and we're not Appian, but we might take an Appian platform and, and customize it for what we need to do. That's what's available today. You don't, need to be a, you don't need to be a technology company from that perspective. You can customize enterprise software or CRM. So that, that's essentially what we've done and we've applied that to every part of the business. Um, and it's just, it, it, anyone can do it. It's just having the mindset. Um, if you actually, if you ever have a window into seeing how these venture capital firms work, again, they just hire tens, hundreds of programmers. A few guys sit around in a room come up with some problems and solutions and they, ha and they throw programmers at it to try to fix it. That's all it is. It takes a long time and that's, that's essentially what we're, that's what we're doing. But we're doing it in a very specific context. So we know exactly what the problems are and what the solutions need to be. It's not open-ended. There's one more question I think over here. Yeah, she's been, she's, she's been very patient so I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Wenji Kao from Aria International. My question is, um, since you're working with the pension funds, will they give you the um, pressure in terms of your investment timeline? As you mentioned, the average renter will live in the house for three to four years. Well, we always, I mean, it's, I, you know, I think the lesson is in, in anything, you know, partnerships, marriage, um, and, and they are, they're, it, I mean, when you're, you know, you know, you're doing business with these pension plans or sovereign wealth funds, I mean, it's a marriage. I mean, you're, you're, you're signing up for, you know, eight years, 10 years plus. They might even have a perpetual feel to them. Um, you have to make sure that you're aligned up front, philosophically aligned. You have the same view of what you want to achieve. So we predetermine all of that. We will never have a fight with them in the middle while well, you said it was this and we thought it was something else. So. They, they, they're in these, they have these, these def vehicles have terms um, and a lot of the investors that we're partnering with today want to hold the assets forever, whatever forever means. Uh, but they, they, they do want to hold them forever um, and so, and we have the same view. Um, we want to hold these assets for the long term so we're managing them, managing them that way. So that concludes our evening's fireside chat. My name is Michelle Ackerman. My name is Michelle Ackerman and I'm a consultant for the Kilmer Group and ULI Toronto's vice chair. Um, so I wanna take a moment to thank Gary and Camille for tonight's uh, wonderful discussion. Um, thank you for providing an in-depth and informative look at Tricon and its approach to leadership in our industry. Uh, on behalf of Gary and Camille, ULI Toronto's made a donation to Grand Trees, an organization of which Tricon is a founding sponsor. Grand Trees is dedicated to enhancing Toronto's green spaces while helping to fight climate change, making our city more livable. Launched in October 2019 with support from Mayor John Tory and city councillors, Grand Trees is looking to raise a million dollars for tree planting in the Toronto area. Finally, I want to end the night by thanking our lead event sponsor, the Carpenters Union, and all of our annual platinum and gold sponsors for their continued support. We hope you'll join us at the ULI Spring Meeting in May in Toronto. For more information about the conference and ULI Toronto events, you can find out more information on our website and at the door on your way out. Uh, thank you and good night.